Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by UPMentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is none other than Dr. Mike Stone of East Tennessee State University. Dr. Stone is currently the Exercise and Sports Science Director at ETSU. Dr. Stone has over 140 publications in review journals and has contributed to chapters in several texts in the areas of bioenergetics, nutrition, and strength and power training. On this episode, Dr. Stone and I discuss many topics, including Mike's background and his influences, the good and not so good things that Mike currently sees within sports science, what currently excites Mike the most about sports science. We discuss programming and periodization, the importance of training residuals, the transfer of training, fiber type transitions that can occur in training, training compatibility of physical qualities, the balance between training specificity and variation to attain optimal performance, hypertrophy's effect on speed development, and I also ask about Mike's thoughts on Franz Bosch's work on strength training and motor learning. This was an absolute beauty of a show, guys, and I hope you really, really enjoyed. Okay, uh, Dr. Mike Stone, it is an absolute pleasure and an absolute honor to have you come on to my podcast. I really appreciate you making the time. Just for the listeners, um, Dr. Stone, that may not be too familiar with who you are, which I would imagine will not be too many people, uh, just fill us in on your background. Well, uh, from an academic standpoint, I've got a, a bachelor's degree in um, zoology from what was then Florida Tech, it's now the University of Central Florida. Um, back in 1979, I got a, a master's degree from Tennessee Tech in biology. And then I did my PhD at, at Florida State and finished there in, in 1977. From a sports background, I was a thrower in, in, in college for a few years, and then really my first love was, was weightlifting. And I was a competitive weightlifter for, for several years. And, you know, got up to, you know, low-level national class and enjoyed it quite a bit and then I coached weightlifting and both throwers and weightlifters for a number of years as well. Um, my research interests uh, are somewhat varied but primarily deals with what uh, are the best methods of, of training particularly for uh, strength power athletes. Great stuff, great stuff. A, a question I always love to ask all my guests is their influences. So who would you say have been the biggest influences on you, both as a sports scientist and as a person? Well, when I was a, when I was a, a um, master's student, my major professor was a guy named Elmo Dooley. He was a, a general in the Air Force and just retired that, from that. And but he had a PhD in biology, and he really had a, a real influence on me because he was quite interested in um, the physiology of exercise. And I guess he and uh, really influenced my thinking about going into that area. And then when I was a doctoral student, my major professor was a guy named Ron Bird. Uh, and he had a, a big influence on me as well. Um, then when I, I got out, uh, I think one of the things that probably had one of the major influences on my life is my wife, this was in 99, my wife became the head track and field coach for Scotland. And we moved to Scotland, and I became chair of Sport at Edinburgh University, and there was a guy there named Dave Collins who 
he had a big, big influence. And then we left Scotland, and I became the head of physiology at uh, the USOC. And I was in Colorado Springs, and there was a guy there, there Bill Sands, um, who had a, a, a big influence on my life. But I suppose the biggest influence has been my wife, Meg. Uh, she is was a biscuit thrower uh, for Great Britain, representing Great Britain in two, two Olympics. She was a Commonwealth gold medal winner. Still holds the NCAA record for the discus. Uh, she went to the University of Arizona. And uh, she has been a major influence because of her work in strength conditioning. She was the first women's uh, strength and conditioning coach at a major university in the United States. And now she's the head of the Center of Excellence for Sports Science and Coaches Education in the Olympic training site we have here at East Tennessee. And she she's my best friend. And... I was lucky enough to get married to her. That's awesome. That's awesome. It's funny you, you say that because uh, I know that you, you don't know much about me personally, but uh, um, I, I'd be good friends with, with Mike Boyle. I, I interned with Mike Boyle, and I actually asked him a question one day. I said, who's your best friend? And he turned around and said his wife straight away. So I thought that was kind of cool. That, I think it's kind of cool when someone can say that their wife is their best friend. Um, and certainly in your situation, it's awesome that you two have such a close relationship both as uh but in, in work life and personal, so that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it really does help because that it makes life a lot easier when you're really, really compatible. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. Uh, Dr. Stone, a question I'd love to get your um, your answer on is what, in terms of future trends in sports science, what excites you? Like, what gets you out of bed in the morning in terms of what, what are you excited about in terms of future trends in sports science? Well, I, I think one thing, and, then, and one of the things we're doing here, and then some of our students are going out in, into their jobs and trying to do similar things, is we have been able to integrate academics and sports uh, pretty well here. Hmm. As part of the students, uh, we're talking about graduate students, but as part of their educational process, they have to work with sports here at ETSU, other universities, high schools, and so on. And I think that that uh, true hands-on experience in an academic setting is, is really helpful. And I think, I hope, and I think that that will be a trend for the future. Uh, it's it's been done in, in other countries for some time, but not here in the United States. Um, I think one of the trends for sports science and maybe coaches' education as well. Um, for example, if I went to Europe and gave a, a fairly high-level scientific talk on, say, the mechanism of hypertrophy or gains in power or whatever. The coaches there are right with me. I can't really say that here in the United States because the educational process is quite different. And one of the things that I would like to see, and I think I think will slowly happen, is the educational process of coaches, particularly strength and conditioning coaches, hmm. here in the United States is going going to change so that there's more of a, an academic background. For example, I don't know too many people that would send their kids to a, to a medical doctor that hadn't been to medical school, but we do it with coaches all the time, even though they haven't been to school to be a coach. And I, I hope that that changes. And I think it will. Yeah, yeah definitely. Another question I always like to ask my guests, and I suppose you kind of maybe touched on, on it there slightly in your previous answer, um, what are the, the, the really, really good things that you're currently seeing in sports science, and what are some of the not-so-good things you're seeing within sports science? And with the not-so-good things, what solutions would you offer? I suppose you kind of maybe already touched on it there in terms of coaching, but is there anything else? So basically the question is, what are the good and the not-so-good that you're seeing currently within sports science and strength and conditioning? The not so good. Uh, well, I think 
it's it's a two edged sword because working with sports um, again that's part of the process and it needs to be there. However, working with coaches directly can be tough. Uh, Convincing them that there's a better way to do things uh, is is often uh, not without its hazards. I mean, it's very difficult to walk into a head coach and say, "No, you're not doing this right." But that has to be done sometimes, and often they don't take it well, and that is that that's a very difficult thing to deal with. Uh, there's a lot of uh, egos involved. There's politics involved uh, and, and right on down the line and, and I think that's one of the major factors another from a research standpoint in, in sports science one of the factors that you often run into that, that can be that can be um, a problem is the institutional review board because mm-hmm. they are often more accustomed to dealing with more health-oriented, mechanistic-oriented, clinically-oriented, you know, working with patients and medical-type things. And then when you come in and you're, you're doing some similar things, but it's not really medical-oriented, it's hard to get them to understand that you don't have to go through HIPAA and so on down the line. So I think those things are, are some major, major areas that... <clears throat> that uh, are going to have to be addressed uh, as we go on, and are being addressed slowly. And and what are the the very good things you think? Well, at the same time, we can go back. Some of the athletic departments are beginning to try to interact with uh, sports scientists and so on. You see, sports scientists beginning to be high. For example, Notre Dame just hired Duncan French. Uh, mm. Uh, University of Oregon just built with a big donation from uh, the Knight family and Nike. They just built a huge uh, sports science building and they're hiring, they just hired Andy Murray from Great Britain over there. Wow. And so one of our students is working for Texas A&M now and so I think some things are changing. The key, though, is, again, getting the folks in sport to understand that sports science is not just window dressing and a recruiting tool, but it actually is valuable and can contribute a lot to the overall well-being of the athlete and improved performance. Yeah, that's amazing. And I actually didn't know Duncan French got that job. That's the first I've heard of it, because I've met Duncan before. Um, yeah. Dr. Stone, you, you obviously are, are well known in terms of your expertise in programming and periodization. And I previously had um, Dr. Gregory Half on, and I know he was a student of yours, and we, we spoke about periodization at length. And uh, I said to Gregory, had he read any of the work of John Kiley, uh, uh, um, another Irish colleague of mine, I've had John on the podcast too. And John has brought up some concerns, or not concerns, but I suppose. You know, he's brought up some questions around the validity of the science behind periodization. Um, and Dr. Half, uh, kind of in answer to that, believes that John may be confusing programming with periodization a little bit. And he said to me that I ever got a chance to talk to you to, to pose the question to you. So just in terms of programming and periodization, do you think that there is some confusion out there between the two? And maybe just for the listeners, just sort of specify exactly what is meant by programming, what is meant by periodization? Yeah, there's there's no doubt that, that that people confuse the two. In fact, when years ago when I first started, it confused me as well. Mm. But but periodization is a conceptual framework that deals with timelines and fitness phases. Programming is how you make those timelines and particularly the fitness phases work. So. Um, Programming is basically the sets and reps and the exercise selection that you, you know, choose to drive the periodization model that you choose. Yeah, great, great stuff. 
And in, in your book, uh, like as I read your textbook, The Principles and Practice of Resistance Training, I, I had to say, like, I, I think that there's no real disagreement among any, any of us because within your textbook, you spoke with the need to be fluid in terms of programming. You just said that periodization, again, is this framework. And within that, you need to sort of be fluid because obviously, you know, a human organism is a dynamic biological organism and obviously going to fluctuate on a moment-to-moment basis. So, like, I mean, it was exactly what John was saying in his papers too. I, again, I just think it's just misinterpretation on some people's parts, but it was interesting. Um, well, I, th- I think, yeah, I think John confuses a, a, a lot of things here. I mean, uh, people have this idea that that the concept of periodization doesn't allow for uh, alterations due to various factors, mm. but that's never been true. Yeah. Uh, it, it is a framework, I think, where where John and some other people have gone wrong, though, is they have carried that too far into, okay, you simply go in and do what you feel like doing that day, which is probably also a mistake. Hmm. Uh, for example, um, there's this idea that if you're not feeling good that day, that, okay, you go in, you automatically change your workout. But if you think about this, and we have asked and asked and observed and and observed, often you go in not feeling quite up to par, but you start warming up and lo and behold, you end up having a good workout. And that happens to a lot of people on a regular basis. So uh, you've got to be really careful about about simply going by how you feel. Um, do do you think do you think that like objective uh, readiness indicators like HRV can help more in in that process? Um, or or like looking at counter different. or looking at counter move vertical jump for more neurological fatigue or certain no, things. No, 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 and I'll tell you why. Please do. We have looked at those things and looked at those things. When I was at the Olympic Training Center, we looked at those things. We have looked at them and looked at them and looked at them. The counter-movement jump has many components to it, not just the height. There's yeah. impulse, there's rate of force development, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Time to take off. And there's also, there's also an arousal aspect yeah. to that. And if you don't have people motivated to the same extent every time, you're going to get vastly different jumps from, from day to day just based on that. And so uh, you've got to be real careful about that because your arousal level can change as you warm up, as you get into a workout. It can change the other direction if you're just doing a vertical jump. So you can, again, if you're doing it every, every day where it becomes ho-hum, for example, people become unmotivated to do that vertical jump because it becomes passe day after day after day. Mm. You can get in real trouble doing that. Do, do you think... We, uh, we have seen that over and over and over. What, what do you think about certain programs? Like there's a, a powerlifting coach, Mike Tashir, and he would um, extensively use the RPE scale. So again, he, he obviously has a program and obviously has a periodization template in place, but he would give you the option of using RPE so that someday, like, you could hit a weight one day and it feels like it's an 8 out of 10, but you win the next day, it might feel like a 9.5. And, and usually the RPE correlates with what, what reps you have left in the tank. Would, would you think maybe that has a, a place as well? So in that way, you're not... Uh, 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 again, you don't know until you get into the workout and you yeah. warm up. Yeah. And one of the things that we do, and, and most people do, is we give the athlete a range. Yes, yes. There. So, okay, you're, you should hit between like 80 and 85% today. Yeah. Or 90 and 95%, depending upon what the rep range yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, they can go a little bit lighter or a little bit heavier. But again, you've got to wait until the athlete really gets in, into the, to the warm-up to see where they're able to go. If they're still not feeling quite, I mean, if you know, if there's a gravity storm in there, obviously, you know, and the warm-ups really feel heavy and the athlete's not up there, you go lighter. If they're feeling really good, you go heavier. 
Um, that's been done for years and years and years. I and mean, if you're really, really feeling bad, obviously you've got to, you know, lighten up even more than than, than the uh, the intensity range would would suggest. Have you looked at velocity-based training for any of that as well? Like, uh, I know you're saying you're using a yeah, range there. We've just completed one one study, and we've got a few others going. Cool. Uh, so far, uh, we haven't seen anything there yet that's that you know really blows us out of the water. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's it's an interesting aspect, but I'm not sure. From a practical standpoint, it's any better than what we were doing before. Yeah, yeah. and just uh, it, it's just what I'm saying is it remains to be seen. Yeah, yeah. It just for for the listeners too, on, on page 270 in, in your textbook, you you have a, a section called periodization versus programming. And you, you pretty much touch on this idea and you bring up sort of something that Mel Sis spoke about again. This idea that you know need to be fluid, but again, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It still wants a sort of conceptual framework in terms of periodization. So. You did cover that very well in your textbook. I remember reading that specific section mm. saying that, like, this this is, I think everyone would agree with this if we all sat down in the room and discussed it. Um, yeah. A really, really interesting area in sports science, uh, Dr. Stone, and, and you did touch on this in your textbook too, and, and it's an area I've been, uh, that a lot of people are actually speaking about, is this idea of fiber transitioning. And there also seems to be this mechanism that a lot of heavy strength work can actually change your type 2X or formerly known as type 2B fibers to A. And then that would have been a bit of D training or more power relate training that they reconvert back into type 2X. And I think a friend of mine, Daniel Martinez, has mentioned that this is called a bi-model, this bi-model mechanism. So do you maybe just want to touch on on this mechanism and is there any sort of theoretical framework of, of why this might happen? Yeah, um, it's, it's pretty uh, well established now that that at least within the uh, type two subfiber types, mm-hmm. that if you increase the volume of training, and it doesn't matter what type of training, it can be sprinting or weight training, or whatever. If you increase the volume enough, you get a transition from a faster fiber two X towards two A. And there's even some information that maybe even towards type one, but it's that's still up in the air. So as the volume goes up, you get a shift. As the volume comes back down, you get a shift in the other direction. And it's interesting because uh, you know sedentary people tend to have more two x fibers, and they just don't use them. But um, that shift is the basis of both tapers and planned overreaching. The mechanism underlying that is still being elucidated, but basically it's known that involves some intercellular signals, the primary ones being uh, mTOR. Uh, that's mammalian target of rapamycin mm. and AMP kinase. Those are two different intercellular signals. mTOR is responsible for increased protein synthesis, and it's a primary intercellular signal that deals with uh, hypertrophy and muscle growth. AMP kinase, on the other hand, is an intercellular signal that deals with everything from glucose transport to the shift in myosin heavy chain towards a slower um, uh, myosin heavy chain, in other words, the transformation from faster to slower. Mm-hmm. And when you en- enhance the volume, and particularly if you do that with low-intensity contractions, AMP kinase is quite stimulated and it actually tends, there is some evidence that it can inhibit mTOR. So you shift in that direction. When the volume comes back down, AMP kinase is not as stimulated and you shift back in the other direction. 
if you plan things out, you can make that happen. Is there a super? Is, get a boost. is there so, any? Well, well, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, one of the things that happens, you think about strength training. Through strength training, you make some alterations in the nervous system that may be beneficial, and you make some alterations in the cross-sectional area that may be beneficial. Mm -hmm. With an increased volume of training. When you decrease the volume, those adaptations tend to hang in there longer than the change back in mice and heavy chains. And so, therefore, when you decrease the volume, you end up with a faster, bigger, stronger, easier activated muscle. Wow. So, is, so is again, it, that's the basis of a taper, and it's also the basis of what's called planned overreaching. Yeah, and is there any evidence? I suppose that's maybe that's maybe what you just touched on there could be seen as some evidence. But is there any evidence of like a super compensation effect? Like, do do any like A's turn into X's that weren't previously X's beforehand? Well, there there is some evidence for that. Uh, Anderson and Agar and. Several other people have cool. have shown that there does seem to be a super compensation effect in terms of two X's. However, a lot of that deals with whether you got a good baseline to begin with, mm -hmm. and so there's still some some questions about that. But yes, there is there is some evidence there may be a, a super compensation effect uh, during a paper. Another question, and I've really always wanted to ask someone of your level of knowledge on fiber transition is, you can read some kind of conflicting literature that there seems they they seem to always say that the fast twitch fiber can convert to a more slower twitch fiber, um, and then when asked the question, well, can a slow twitch turn into a fast twitch? There seems to be a lot of like disagreement that a lot of people say no, that really doesn't happen. Other people say. It, it potentially could happen. Is there any evidence to see a type 1 turn into a 2A or a 2X? Well, probably more so 2A. Uh, that's a difficult question. Most of the evidence would say probably not. Hmm. There is a bit of evidence here and there, though, that's kind of intriguing that says, mm, maybe. But what maybe, I mean, see, the fiber typing is not as clear-cut as people think because there are yeah. also hybrids. Yeah. And it, what may be occurring is that you have the appearance and disappearance of hybrids. Yes. Depending upon the volume and type of exercise. Yeah. And we still haven't got a clear handle on the, what's going on with those, those hybrids. So that question is, is a bit difficult to, to, to answer. The general consensus, I think, of most muscle physiologists would be probably not. Mm. But there is some intriguing evidence that suggests uh, maybe so. Great stuff. So uh, another uh, question that I really want to get your thoughts on, and um, Dr. Half actually called this the holy grail of programming, training residuals, because you can read a lot of literature again on the, res the training residuals, and you know right. so, some of it again can conflict. So a lot of people seem to always reference uh, Vladimir Ishirin's block periodization books because they seem to be the most just like highly referenced material in terms of residuals. But like I often hear some coaches say that residuals for one particular quality are long, and then I hear a, conf a conflicting uh, counterpoint say no that the residuals for that are actually short. Because I've heard people say aerobic residuals are very long, and I've heard other people say that they're short, and then vice versa, or, and then then with other qualities. So just in terms of training residuals. Uh, what are your thoughts on training residuals? How do you think we can understand them better to help us design better programmings and help with the overall tapering and peaking of our athletes? Well, there's, there's, in my opinion, there's no doubt that training residuals exist. I mean, yeah. we've known that for years. I mean, I mean 
when you quit training, you know, there, there is a decay of whatever you built up in terms of fitness factors. I mean, whether it's max CO2 or maximum strength or, you know, high intensity endurance or low intensity endurance, that doesn't just disappear automatically. Mm-hmm. So it, it hangs in there. The question that you're asking is, what is the length of time that they hang in there? Yeah. <laughs> and based based on what I've I've seen and based on what I've read, uh, th- there is a, a difference, and it can be quite a marked difference in how long some of those things can can hang in. Um, there's some evidence that that speed of movement starts decaying quite fast, whereas maximum strength may hang in there longer, uh, maybe up to as much as two or three weeks um, before it really has a a substantial, you know, statistical decrease. Now, on the other hand, velocity does, uh, aerobic power probably does not hang in there that long, max VO2. Um, so strength hangs in there a long time. Rate of force development is probably one of the most sensitive, uh, at least we found this and some other people have. Rate of force development is very sensitive in, in terms of volume effects and in terms of, uh, uh lack of training. It, it decays pretty quickly. Mm. And uh, so, yes, there are residual effects. Not every residual has the same decay rate. And so when people talk about preparedness or or the the potential uh, to bring people to a peak for the taper, what you're probably looking at is a combination of the degree to which they've built fitness factors and the decay rate for the, for those fitness factors. And it's probably a summation of those things that allow you to, to get to a peak. The, the, the interesting thing, the interesting questions become, if you train a certain manner, does it change the decay rate? Mm-hmm. It obviously changes how much fitness you have, but does it change the, the decay rate? And I don't think anybody knows that right and then there's the factor of fatigue on top of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, so there's a, a number of factors there that you have to to play with, and that's why coaching is still an art. <laughs> yes. And because we don't have complete answers to that yet. Like uh, with, with the residuals, I suppose context needs to be taken into consideration in terms of the individual that you're you're speaking about. Like surely someone who has you know, a longer career in terms, let's say, of strength development, their training residual of their strength surely would be longer than a beginner or, or somebody you class as a beginner. Like, their decay rate surely would be longer, would it not? Yeah. Steinhaus showed that way, way back in the 50s. Yeah, yeah. Um, although he, he was using isometric strength to, to measure it. But nevertheless, that there is some evidence for that, yes. Mm. And you, as I say, you would assume that people who are better trained, their decay rates might be a little bit different. Yeah. Uh, so, and not only that, but there might be different kinetics at different points in that decay rate. In other words, it might start off slow and then all of a sudden take off. Take off, yeah. So, uh, that's not known. There, there's a lot of things that are simply not known because we have measured and no one has attempted to measure yet uh, in, in a really uh, logical, you know, good, well put together series of studies. Let's, 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 get, let's get on it, Dr. Stone. And one, one reason is because it's very difficult to, to, to do. I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about making a lot of serial measurements. Yeah. And, you know, at what point does that start interfering with the athlete's training? Yeah, very true. Very true. 
Uh, moving on from uh, residuals, another sort of um, related topic, and I, I love speaking about this, and again, it's another area I really want you to uh, elaborate on and give your thoughts, is training compatibility. So the compatibility of different qualities. Again, there seems to be slight disagreements with certain people. So, for instance, I know a lot of people who would, would quote Ishran's work say that a lot of alactic abilities don't go very well with uh, lactate abilities or glycolytic abilities and yet in some other texts they say that they they do go together and i guess maybe it's just there is a misinterpretation maybe of certain things uh, probably more so than anything else um what, what i kind of kind of see in my mind is that surely there's a certain threshold where like qualities can go together but if they cross a certain threshold so for instance obviously if you're a powerlifter and then you start incorporating a marathon runner's volume of running that's definitely going to impact your strength whereas if you were just doing very low level aerobic kind of work um at a very low threshold surely that would then enhance recovery and not be detrimental to your strength so in terms then of just training compatibility what are your thoughts on on that well let's take the example you just gave uh, that may not be true there probably is a threshold but for example Hackenden has a paper out showing that as little as uh, about a mile twice a week statistically altered rate of force development in other words it decreased mm -hmm. because as I say it's very rate of force development is very very sensitive to what goes on mm -hmm. so it may very well be and and that may not be a function of the volume, but rather the type of exercise. And so you've got to be very careful as to what may or may not be compatible. Yes. But also, and when this is one thing that a lot of people don't realize that Isram actually said, and that we've also said, if you take block periodization, which is also called phase potentiation, um, there are, in fact, two types. There's what people traditionally think of in terms of block periodization, and that is you've basically got a quite unidirectional type of approach. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean all the training is always completely compatible, but that means that everything that is incompatible with your primary goal is really de-emphasized at certain times. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that that appears to work very well with sports that you might say are not multifactorial, like powerlifting, like weightlifting, like throwing. I mean, you don't have all kinds of things to think about. Yes, there is some recovery involved in it, but not like you would it would would not like would take place with basketball. Plus, you don't have all the different moves that you have to make. And if you think about powerlifting, you got three: you got a bench press, you got a deadlift, and a and a squat. And that's what you got to work on. And those things, you know, at least for, in terms of the squat deadlift, are are pretty compatible. Distance running is not compatible with that. You know, probably going out and playing basketball four or five times a week is probably not going to be compatible with that. Mm -hmm. um, so those are the kinds of things you got to take into consideration. Now, what Israel also said, and what we've also said, and several other people also said, when it comes to team sports, now you have to think about multifactorial uh, combinations. And you have to deal with some things that at times are incompatible. But that's because of the nature of the sport. And so there's still some emphasis and de-emphasis, but now you've got to do many different things. So you've got the sport practice itself. You may have, you know, for example, in a, in a football, soccer, football, you may have some, uh, some type of aerobic enhancement training. It m might be some longer distance running, but it might be short-sided, you know, uh, small-sided games. It might be 
um, intermittent running, it might be interval training, it could be any number of things. And then you might have some, you know, the typical sit-ups and flexibility work, and then you've got some weight training on top of that, and then you've got skill practice, you know, you've got shot practice and so on down the line. So those things have all got to be uh, put together in some type of program and sometimes simultaneously. The key to it is what are you going to emphasize and de-emphasize at certain times during the, the, the program. And so that, I, I think Isran, if you really go back and read what he's talking about, he does address those things, mm. especially so, in some of his later writings. And yeah, so, so he yeah, he, he, no, he definitely does. Yeah, and it's 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 to be honest, it's exactly how I program. And Doctor Half spoke about this. He he kind of basically describes it as a continuum. At one end of the continuum, you have pure a lock periodization, whereas you spoke about has this a unidirectional loading where you saturate a quality, and right. and then at the other right. end you, you have the concurrent model where there's no real emphasis. And his whole thing was that if you just bring that to the center and you just basically have this kind of modified block model where you emphasize a certain uh, quality and you maintain the other qualities and then and still have your phase potentiation in that that each sure. block builds is a foundation for each successive block so it's exactly how, how i program as well and i suppose it's very similar in a way as well to vertical integration from charlie and i know al vermeil was a was a very big proponent of charlie and al would always say always keep a thread of everything in your program but just always shift your emphasis around well that's that and that's basically what what should take place mm. is that you shift emphasis. Um, and as I say, in, in what you might, you know, one end of the continuum like powerlifting, you haven't got nearly as many factors to shift around. Mm -hmm. And so you can have a more unidirectional box at, yeah, at, yeah. at that time. There's still emphasis and de-emphasis, de but uh, it's more of a volume emphasis and de-emphasis. There's not, not so much problem with the compatibility of doing so many different uh, things like, you know, sports practice, and et cetera, et cetera, yeah. as you would have in, in football. And I'm talking about soccer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the real football, not not a not a hand egg as we call it over here, right? Football hand egg. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, I, I lived in, in Scotland for for quite a while, so uh, it caught on, and it makes sense. To yeah, me. that's a, uh, another question. I'd love love you to touch on is the transfer of training effect, um, and also you know Franz Bosch has been pretty popular lately. I've had Franz. He was actually my latest podcast went up, and Franz is obviously. You know, he's putting forth more so the motor learning aspect of performance, you know, whereas I think a lot of our previous sort of discussions all centered around developing physical capacities. And whereas Franz is kind of looking at, you know, uh, training to, uh, training and the transfer training more so towards like, you know, con contextual movements and, you know, specificity versus variation in training and whatnot. So. In terms of the transfer training and also the motor learning aspect of the transfer training, what are your what are your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I saw friends Bosch in Japan re recently, and he quite let's just say that the people there. It was at the International Society for Biomechanics and Sport, and I don't think the people there received it too well. Mm. I, I think he is missing a lot of key elements in, in his approach. Um, and my opinion, I don't think he really understands specificity that well. Because specificity is more than just the movement pattern. It deals with rate of force development. It deals with uh, what you might term more physiological aspects like intercellular signals. It, just, it deals with you know, tissue architecture, uh, and, on, and on down the line. And simply trying to enhance a movement pattern doesn't address all those issues. And, 
and I'm not sure some of the things that he suggests to enhance those movement patterns work as quite as well as what he thinks they do. Uh, and I'm not, put, you know, you brought uh, brought him up. I'm not picking on him. Yeah, no, general, no. But, no. But that basic idea, it, it just doesn't hold water when you really crit critically analyze it, because there are so many other factors that are involved. And uh, if you look at the evidence that is out there, there is no doubt that, that strength plays a major role because there is study after study after study. I mean, uh, for example, the, the recent uh, review of the literature by Sites showing the, the strong relationship between maximum strength and sprint performance. The recent review, review by Sukumail, uh that I was involved in, uh, showing the relationship between maximum strength and power output and sports performance in general. I mean, there's there's a huge amount of evidence there, uh, and if you take this the, the trend that's advocated by Franz Bosch and a few other, other people. It's basically, you really don't get strong. <laughs> I mean, uh, and, and I hate to say that, but the, the way that they approach strength training is at such low level that you never really become truly strong as a result of that. And so that doesn't fit the evidence that's out there. Yeah, I, no, like, 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 that's good to get your thoughts on that as well. Like. I, I do, I'd like to get your thoughts on, you do see a lot of guys who can shift a lot of load in weight room exercises, but then they they struggle to transfer that then into their sport-specific movement. So what would you suggest would be a way to increase the transfer training in that regard? And conversely, you can often see guys who are very strong in terms of executing their sport-specific skill. Like you'd often see guys saying, "Jesse's he's very strong out in the pitch. You can't, can never get a ball off him." But then in the weight room, they don't. They're they're very average at best. So I think a lot of people would, like they kind of. And Dr. Half actually made a good point on this. He thinks that people are very isolated. When you say strength, people automatically think about squatting and deadlift and benching. But Dr. Half is saying there's many ways to create strength. You know, so like again, there's there's been a, a history of track athletes who never lifted a weight but were super strong though. You know, if, if you actually did bring them into a weight room and said lift a weight, and they'd actually lift quite well, even though they never did any specific weight training. Well, genetics is still the, the largest factor. Yeah, yeah, without true. a doubt. But uh, that I, I've got to take a little bit of issue with that. Yeah, no, please uh, do, please do. I, I, I this, this is why you come on. Everybody says, yeah, there are lots of those athletes. There's not. They're really exceptions. And you will be hard-pressed to find a lot of athletes. In fact, many of those athletes that said, okay, I never lifted the weight, I've seen them in the weight room. Mm. Uh, I mean, I, I, I've actually seen some of that. I'm not going to throw them under, under the bus, but I have seen them there. So, you know, oh, I don't lift weights, but then, yeah, they do. Um, the, other, the other thing I want to get back to is the genetics thing that people... Genetics is a huge issue in in sport, and I mean, read the sport gene. Uh, it, it's a it is the major factor, without a doubt. Uh, training also plays a large role, but if you've got the right genetics, and there are two factors there. One, do you have the physiological linked aspect already? But there's a second factor that people often overlook. And that is genetics also, to a large extent, prescribes the window of adaptation. And some people have a much greater window of adaptation than others. And what you find, in fact, Bouchard showed this years ago, what you find is, is that the people who really make it to the top have both of those. They have the genetically linked factors, and they have that large window of adaptation. And uh, that's often overlooked. And so what you deal with on, on a, a large 
a, in large populations of, of sport is development at best, at very best, is developmental athletes. You aren't dealing with the people who have those two traits. Mm. Those are the people who end up at the Olympics, and that's not most of the athletes. But if you if you take a look at those athletes, if you look at them very closely, you will find that they have the traits that everybody else aspires to. They are strong. They have more type two or type one fibers, depending upon the sport, and so on down the line. Mm -hmm. And it's it's been if you really get into the literature and take a, a look at it, you'll find that over and over and over. So yeah. you know what you're talking about, I think, are exceptions. Yeah. No, it's great great to get. I I know that you are a big proponent of of strength, and and it's just good to get your thoughts because again, a lot of people. Lately, I suppose they've been talking more about these other models that have been well, what proposed they, what, what people don't realize, and I think that's one thing that, that probably Dr. Half was talking about. T typically, people, when they think about strength, they think about how much can you lift. Yeah. They don't think about all the things that come with that. Yeah. For example, people who are stronger have higher rates of force development. Mm -hmm. People who are stronger have higher power out. People who are stronger tend to have uh, faster velocities of contraction. People who are stronger tend to be able to hold positions better, mm -hmm. uh, and so on down the line. And it, it goes on and on and on. And so strength is not simply how much can you lift. It's a vehicle for many other characteristics that come with it. And so, okay, you say, okay, I know somebody that can lift a lot of weight in the weight room, but they can't run very fast. How much do they run? Yes, yeah. And one thing that Warren Young showed uh, quite a while back, back in the early 90s, uh, was that if you want the best results for the strength training, you've got, to, in terms of transfer, you got to practice sometimes what you want it to transfer to. Or it's not going to transfer very well at all. Do you I mean, think there? Do you think there's a threshold in terms of maximum strength development, or are you sort of similar along the lines of Louis Sims of you should just always continue to try and get as strong as possible? I think you, you need to get as strong as you can within the context of the sport. Mm. So, for example, a marathon runner is not ever going to be as strong as a shot, but they still need to get as strong as they can yeah. uh, within the context of that sport. Mm -hmm. uh, just one thing I, I wanted to touch on, you were, you were just with, with Franz Bosch in terms of uh, specificity. In, in his book, he, he does mention that specificity has other things like, like you mentioned, like, you know, energy systems and uh, fiber architecture and all that. But in his book, he, he puts it in a hierarchy and, and he says that at the top of that is like your intramuscular coordination, intermuscular coordination. So to him, the movement is the most important thing in terms of training transfer over other areas, like the more physiological areas or energy system areas or fiber architecture. So he does, well, he, he, he does actually address that. I'm just, just, just to say that for him. The problem with that approach is that uh, you, you, I, you might argue that for a beginner, uh, but there is evidence that once your basic technique is established, it is very difficult to change, very difficult to change. And that's, that's one of the reasons that it's so important to establish good technique right off the bat when you start, because you may be stuck with that bad technique if you don't. Mm -hmm. And that there is good evidence that you can establish pretty much reasonable technique in most sports uh, in a relatively short period of time. Certainly, your, your technique is, is largely established in the first three months to a year. And after that, it's going to be very difficult to change it. So if you think about his hierarchy, if your technique is established and it's difficult to change, then why do you continue to work on it? Well, what, what, I, what I would say... Let's, let's, look at the, let's look at these other factors, you know, because now at that point, they're going to be much more important than what you can do with your technique. 
Yeah, but w- what I would say is in in terms of what Franz is talking about, he brings up this model of a fl- uh, fluctuators and attractors, so that, for instance, when you're sprinting, like your body, even though you have like a global, you have a global technique of your your sprint pattern from a central standpoint, your your peripheral like level, your peripheral sensory level still has to adapt like to whatever way your foot contacts the ground like in milliseconds so he's big into like this attractor and fluctuator model in terms of complex biological systems and having to adapt like instantaneously to the environment so that's why he would argue he's trying to set up some of his exercises like that so they'll have more transfer in terms of sprint performance anyway and you know he talks about the the degrees of freedom from neil bernstein and all that so that kind of way that well like i said if you look at the evidence that doesn't stand up Okay. And, and I mean, there's no doubt that that happens. But the the point is, it's going to happen anyway, hmm. regardless of whether you continue to work on those things. There's just a study that, that's come out, for example, looking at balance training. And you know what they found? A high degree of specificity. Yeah. A very high degree of specificity. So if you work on, you know, balance on one leg standing on a boat ball, that doesn't necessarily transfer to a soccer field where it's not soft. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're not trying to maintain your balance. Yeah. And it's in, it just came out in sport medicine. It's a, a review of the literature. And when you start looking at these things critically, they don't quite stand up. And that's why I say we need to get back and look critically at what's in the literature. Mm-hmm. And also from a practical standpoint. If that worked that well, where are all those athletes that are doing it? Yeah, yeah. And I don't see them. Yeah. You know, but I do see athletes that are in the weight room doing squats that perform better and that are elite athletes. I do see athletes that are performing clean. I do see athletes that do, you know, any number of things, uh, both in the weight room, on the track, that I don't see in terms of uh, this more motor control approach. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some things that probably are are helpful there. Mm -hmm. But to expect that to turn the athlete into Superman is simply not going to happen. Because, again, I think you're taking the exception. Okay, I never lifted weights and I can run fast. You're taking the exception and using that as the rule rather than the other one, you know, taking the people that, that, you know, the other 99% that are not the exception and how they got there. Yeah, well, uh, just just so, uh, like, uh, for anyone who's listening, they're clear. I, I fully agree that strength is an under, you know, is underpins um, all the other physical qualities and that strength development is very, very important. And what Dr. Half brought to my attention was that strength can be developed in different ways like again when you think strength training like you alluded to people automatically think oh your squat has to be this much and you have to bench or military press or deadlift this much or hand clean this much and dr half saying that's one way to develop strength because like other people can develop strength from many different ways so he what he was saying was that even with those athletes you say who who, who don't lift and even if they truly didn't lift he says they developed their strength through whatever it was they did throwing or sprinting or gymnastics. But he says they were still strong. They still had a strength foundation. So he kind of just alluded to being more, you know, sort of not being so narrow-minded in your sort of thought process of what is strength. So he, he was still saying well, that strength is very important. I, I, I would turn that around and say that if you look carefully, if you carefully consider what's going on, I would say the narrow-mindedness is the other way around people who don't want to do strengthening and that that seems to be the trend is oh we, let's, let's don't do that mm-hmm. to the detriment of the athlete oh yeah 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 definitely yeah. but the, the, the thing is are there stronger people out there yes there there are those people but it's because they have the right genetics i promise you if you want to get strong if you really want to get strong you've got to at some point lift heavy, heavier loads mm-hmm. you have to mm-hmm. Now, you can get some loading by, you know, things like depth jumps and, and plyometrics, but it's not going to approach the same loading that you can get in the weight room. Yeah, yeah. 
So if you really want to be strong, if you really want to be strong, at some point, somehow, whether it's in the weight room or somewhere, you've got to lift heavier loads. Just saying. Now, now, having, having said that, there are people, because of their genetics, that are going to, when you do plyometrics or mm-hmm. whatever, they're going to respond to that because of their window of adaptation more so than other people. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're going to be extremely strong in relative terms. But that doesn't obviate the fact that most people are not that way. Yeah. And not only that, it doesn't obviate the fact that those people, if they got into the weight room, might be better. Better, yeah. No, definitely. No, they're, they're great points. Uh, I know you have to go now, so but there's just one last question, um, and then I'll just uh, get you back on maybe for a part two because there's definitely some other questions I want. I definitely want to ask, like you know, things like your biggest lessons and advice to all the coaches and stuff. But uh, just in terms there, you just brought up like depth jumps and plyometrics. I want to get your thoughts on this. How come in terms of like say uh, depth jumps or maximum velocity sprinting, the body allows us to put multiple times our body weight through our joints but yet we would never be able to do that when we say do a squat like our body would never allow that like if you read some studies they'd say you can put like up to 10 times your body weight through a joint in maximal sprinting but yet no one would ever squat 10 times your body weight. now i have some top processes on it the fact that you know a squat wow. takes a lot longer to execute you're going through a larger range of motion the muscle tissue takes on more load whereas obviously in top end sprinting it's more your elastic properties but how come uh, how come we can't develop the same force output in that? And then that comes back to the transfer of training. How much then would that squat transfer into things like, you know, uh, elastic reactive capabilities? And somebody who's probably more highly trained than a novice. A lot. You're asking several questions. <laughs> the re- the reason that the forces are higher is because the velocity is higher. It comes back to Newton second law, force equals mass and acceleration, you get the acceleration up high enough, you got a lot, you had to produce a lot of force to do that. How come our receptors so, don't... How so come, impact, yeah. the impact, I mean, is, is going to cause it. How come our, uh, we don't get neural inhibition there, Dr. Stone? Like, how come the Galgaten organs and the spindles don't kick on like they would in a maximal max squat, say, for instance? Well, because you got a time frame that doesn't allow it to completely. I was thinking, yeah, yeah, completely, yeah, yeah, and that—that's part of it. But what people forget about the, the squat, the slower squat, is the velocity may be low, but the rate of force development it may be way up there. Mm, mm. And so that's that's, great that's point. the part that, that carries over. Great point, yeah. And and people forget that. Great point. Dr. Stone, listen, I, w- I know you have a meeting to go to. It's 10 o'clock there, so I won't keep you any longer. Uh, just Maybe just for the last minute, can you give any parting advice to the listeners, all the coaches there? I'm sorry? Could, could you give uh, any parting advice like to any of the coaches or, or future sports scientists? Any advice you'd give to anyone? Well, I, I think one of the primary things, and, it, and unfortunately, you can see this on the internet, you can all over the place is people have begun to forget how to go through critical thinking Mm. and that is you know is it logical what's in the literature how does the literature disagree you know how does it agree you know what factors have been left out are these really decent studies or are they poor studies and so on down the line and we've got to get back to that Uh, I mean Really, we need to get back to good, evidence-based, sound reasons for carrying out the programs that we carry out. And if we do that, everybody will be much better off. I mean, the, that's what should be driving coaching. I see that much more in Europe than I do here. Great stuff. Dr. Stone, thank you so much for your time. and. Hopefully I'll get you back on for part two because I have lots more to speak about and I'm sure you have lots more you'd love to touch on too. That was a fantastic hour and I really, really appreciate it. So uh, I'll let you go and um, I'll send you the link with the email in an email when this podcast is up. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for having me and I'll 
See you later. Thanks, Dr. Stone. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, guys, what a great episode with Dr. Mike Stone. I hope you really enjoyed it. Yeah, keep sharing the podcast, guys. Keep leaving some reviews. And uh, I will talk to you soon. Uh, take care. Uh, be well and stay strong. Thank you.